May the peace of the Lord be with you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'll be preaching this week and next in Father Scott's absence. And over these two weeks, um, the sermons will have a related theme. I'll talk about sin and our response to it, both as a community and forgiveness when we are injured by sinful conduct. Several years ago, I was traveling by myself on business down in San Diego, and I didn't want to make the long drive back to L.A. for the few days I would be working down there. So I checked into a hotel. Those of you who travel, you know that the worst part of being on the road is dealing with meals. So the first night, I just had room service. The next night, I did fast food, and the entire room smelled like um, McDonald's fries. In fact, if you go down, it probably still smells like McDonald's fries. By the third night, I was going a little stir-crazy, so I just wanted to get out of the room. So I decided to go out by myself for dinner, and I'd never gone out to a restaurant by myself. It felt a bit strange, so I brought work with me, thinking that that might help, at least give me cover or an alibi. So I was seated in one of those tables for two where the back is a bench seat and on the other side there's a chair. So I went in the back and I sat on the booth side. And about halfway through my meal I noticed across the dining room a nice couple came in and were seated. They were dressed in business attire. The man looked familiar to me. The woman did not. And it turned out that the man was someone who I had seen in church intermittently. Not every week, but often. So I assumed that they must have been down there, just as I was on business, and that the woman was a colleague or a client. And I was going to... I started my way over to say hello, and as I made it halfway across, he slid closer to the woman, took her hand, and kissed her on the cheek. He was married, and this was not his wife. I said to myself, oh no, why me? I didn't want them to see me. I don't know why I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed for them, and I did not want to get involved. I didn't want them to see me. I didn't want to hear an explanation. Frankly, I assumed that it was simply none of my business, so I quickly retreated to the safety of my little table, using a work folder to block my face. I'm working diligently. I asked for the check, dropped the money on the table, and actually snuck out of the restaurant. At one point, to avoid being seen, like a teenager sneaking out of the house, I ducked below a table. I was so embarrassed. So I never said anything to the man. In fact, I never said anything to anyone. But, if I'm honest, I have to imagine that it wasn't the first or last time that this man had such a meeting. 
I eventually changed churches when I moved, but I eventually heard that the man and his wife were um, divorced. So I've often asked myself is if the result would have been different had I actually approached the man and said something. And I pondered my duty in such circumstances as a Christian. Well, today's gospel reading answers that question for me and for all of us. So in Matthew 18, Jesus sets out how sin by members of a Christian community, our community, should be handled. Quite simply, his prescription is when you find a brother or sister in sin, you should go to them and talk about things openly, honestly, directly, person to person, in love and out of concern. Jesus does not say ambush them. He does not say gossip about them. He does not say shame and embarrass them. He certainly does not say shun or ignore them, at least not initially, as we'll see. Because one in sin is in danger of becoming forever lost. And our concern should be with recovery and salvation. Additionally, sin is always hurtful. It's hurtful to the sinner, certainly, but also to those affected by the sin. For instance, I would imagine that the man's conduct was quite hurtful to his wife. So Jesus tells us that we should speak honestly and directly with each other, not in anger, but also not hiding the sin or the hurt of the action or actions that the sinner may have caused or be causing. Importantly, he does not describe this as a contest where one person is the winner and the other person is a loser. It's not an argument. What he wants from this direct confrontation and communication, rather, is reconciliation. He seeks the retrieval of a sinner, the recovery of a lost member of his flock. So we're told to deal with sin amongst us. What is sin? Which sins are we talking about? As a preface to what I'm about to say for the remainder of the sermon, there's some sin that should be immediately reported, right? Like if you found out that I've murdered someone and shared with you what I did with the body, this might not apply. Also, if it's anything, for instance, involving the harm or abuse of a child or another person, that should be acted on immediately. So what is the sin that we're talking about? Sin is the universal state and effects of humanities, both individual and corporate, disordered relationship with God and our neighbors. All sin is rooted in fundamental unbelief, distrust, and rejection of God and human displacement of the Creator as the Lord of all creation. So the Bible presents sin both as fallen humanity's state of separation and alienation from God and even as a person's purposeful disobedience to God's will as evidenced in thought and act. The Anglican Catechism confirms that sin alienates me from God, my neighbor, God's good creation, 
and myself. So again, I made the preface about sin. Initially, I could see one problem when you're seeking to apply Matthew 18. And this is what sin? We're all sinners. I am a sinner. I will confess to you, my brothers and sisters, that I sinned yesterday. I sinned today. And if the Lord grants me another day on this earth, I will sin tomorrow. So is Jesus saying that we should be watching one another and calling one another out on each and every action that could be perceived as a sin? Like Father Jim, I saw that your third piece of cake, gluttony, is a sin. That's not the intent. When you read the passage in context, the concern is with the type of sin which threatens the very soul that separates the sinner from God and our Christian community and causes injury not just to the sinner but to those affected by the sin. So perhaps for this sermon with certain modifications, a good place to start would be the Ten Commandments. For instance, if you know that one of our members is, let us say, committing adultery, I think the provisions of Matthew 18 should apply. So if you find that one has committed a sin or continues in a state of sin, you should approach them in private and point out the sin. This demonstrates a concern for directness, openness, and above all, confidentiality. If they have erred or demonstrated a sinful attitude unbecoming to a Christian, and you are the only one who knows about it, the knowledge needs to go no further. If there is repentance and a desire to change the offending behavior, and such behavior does in fact change, the purpose of the confrontation has been achieved and the confidentiality will be binding. Relationships are then restored. The sinner will be saved from the path of error. This step is preliminary to any other action in regard to the sin. But what if you hear about sin secondhand, as is far too frequently the case? You are still commanded to have the same concern for the sinner as if the offense were personally known to you. Often, we're inclined to think, if so many people know about it, certainly someone has probably already spoken to the person, and we don't need to do anything about it. Okay, sometimes that's why buildings burn down. Okay, I see the fire, and it's a big fire, but I'm sure someone had already called the fire department, and meanwhile, the building burns down. So it may or may not be true that others have spoken to the sinning brother or sister. It may simply be that gossip is being spread and that no one is taking the affirmative responsibility to speak directly to the person. In such cases, your responsibility is called out. It's to go to the person and talk about the fault or sin. It's not your responsibility to say that such and such persons are saying these things about you. Gossip is simply another sin which the church needs to confront directly. In the majority of cases, any word which we hear 
about another person's sin is not to be passed on to others, not even to the church, I believe, until each of us have followed the steps of personal confrontation to see if repentance can occur on a one-to-one basis. All right, let's say we do that. If the person will not listen, you are to try again, but this time bring back up. The language of this verse reflects the Greek version of Deuteronomy 19.15. In the Old Testament text, two or three witnesses were required to confirm the facts of an accusation in a court of law. The Old Testament reference serves as instructions for a new community and is probably intended to relate the new tradition to the old rather than to carry the full legal implications of the Deuteronomy text to the new fledgling church. The role of two or three witnesses in Deuteronomy was to establish facts in the judicial process. Some interpreters see the introduction of the allusion here to Deuteronomy to indicate a formal judicial process being contemplated in the New Testament church. I don't think so. I think that this understanding or interpretation is in tension with the pastoral and redeeming purpose of the passage as a whole. Their role is not primarily that of witnesses for the prosecution should the case go before the church. In Deuteronomy, the witnesses were to help establish the guilt of a person before judges. By contrast, in our gospel reading, the role of witnesses is to discreetly help convince the fellow disciple of the need for repentance. They are witness also to the private effort at correction and reconciliation, and they also act to encourage their brother or sister to accept the fact that their conduct has been sinful. All right. Assume that the person still refuses to listen. If you look at the opening words of verse 17, They provide confirmation of the fact that the role of the witnesses are to help convince the person, their fellow disciple, to repent and be forgiven. Only after after the efforts of an individual or a small group of counselors has failed is the matter, matter to be brought to the church should be considered that several individual or small group efforts should appropriately precede the step of bringing the sin to the attention of the church. If they succeed and the brother or sister repents, a crisis in the church has been averted. And according to James 5, 19 through 20, the soul of the sinner is saved from death and a multitude of sins have been covered. Unfortunately, it may be necessary to go to the church. Even at this stage, it's important to remember that the goal of the process is to save the immortal soul of the sinner. The purpose is always pastoral and not punitive. It's probable that the instruction to take the matter to the church implies taking it first to the church leaders 
who would also try to convince the person to repent and revise the offending behavior. For instance, Father Scott. One is to tell the church that the fellow disciple has sinned. The church should also be told about the efforts to resolve the matter privately. The church then becomes involved in the process of convincing for the purpose of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration of faith. (sighs) What if the person still cannot be reconciled? For instance, if I am censored for heresy, let's say, it's possible that I can still ignore that censor. If the response is still denial and rebellion, the brother or sister is to be treated as no longer belonging to the body of Christ. That is to say, the person will be treated as an unbeliever, but a person to be um, evangelized and brought back into fellowship of the church if and when that may become possible. We can only think about the language referring to Gentiles and tax collectors correctly if we remember the way that Jesus treated them. Jesus invited Levi, Matthew, a tax collector, to become a disciple. He accepted the invitation of Zacchaeus and made it an opportunity to bring him to salvation. Ordinarily, there would be little intimate contact with outsiders except for the purposes of evangelization. But when a brother or sister becomes an outsider through sin, we are advised to remember here the parable of the lost sheep going astray and the concern of the father that not one of these little ones should be lost. So, going back to the beginning, should I have said something to my brother that I saw in the restaurant? Today's gospel reading answers that question for me. I did have a duty, yet I did nothing. I was at fault, and I pray for God's forgiveness. Next week, we'll talk about that forgiveness. God bless.